uh, our session for the evening. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. Help us to better understand not only the saints that we are going to be talking about tonight, but the background which gave them the uh, opportunity, let's say, to serve you in a very special way, each in his own way. <clears throat> Help us then to understand so that we might realize that in our own situation, our own lifestyle, we can serve you in accordance with your most holy will without going into extremes of any kind. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Uh, I'd like to give you a little background of something that happened this week. Um, one of our members, who's not here tonight, and I'm kind of glad she isn't, only because I want to tell you what kind of happened. She called me and she said, because she also comes to the morning class, which I teach in here, uh, like tomorrow morning, uh, on the subject of the prophet Daniel. So she said on EWTN, this was last uh, Thursday, I believe, yes, Thursday morning. She says on EWTN they're going to have uh, a lady speak on the prophet Daniel. And she says, I suggest that you tune it in uh, if you can. Well, I don't usually watch television during the day, but I thought, well, this is a special occasion, so I will do that. So I tuned in to EWTN at 10.30 in the morning, and... Uh, this little nun comes on, very nice uh, appearing and so forth, very nice speaker, and she wants to talk about the prophet Daniel. And right up front she says, but I'm not going to get into the historical background of Daniel. And I thought, well, that just you know, blows it for me. Um, because, and then I did watch the rest of it, and I had no quarrel with what she said. But she spent the whole half hour solely on the uh, theological or religious or spiritual significance of what Daniel did in the trial he was in and so forth, which, of course, I have no quarrel with. But the thing is, when you take something out of context like that, then it gives credence to at least the appearance in this case, that Daniel is a real person and this is a real event. And that's not the case. The whole book of Daniel is what they call apocalyptic literature. And for those of you who have been in one of my classes on that subject uh, some time ago, uh, will understand that. Uh, but the first six chapters, and she only talked about chapter one, but the first six chapters are stories uh, to give the people hope and courage during a time of severe persecution. But because the writer was reluctant to write about the evils of the 
Greek conquerors at the time. This was sort of the last remnants of the uh, Greek Empire um, because the people, the Jewish people were fearful of uh, saying anything against him because they wouldn't uh, last very long. They write in this disguised language called apocalyptic, which takes things out of context in a way and puts it back into the 6th century. So here we have writings about the 2nd century B.C., but the storyline is put back into the 6th century to disguise what the writer is really saying. But because the references were to other books of the Old Testament that these people would have known, they knew what was really being said. But when you take things out of context, it kind of destroys what the writer is truly saying. And what this nice little nun was saying was giving her own theological interpretation of what was going on. Well, I have no quarrel with that, except that that is not Bible study. Bible study is trying to determine and understand what the writer of the book is trying to present to you and what the circumstances are that made that necessary. So if you are studying any particularly Old Testament, you have to really understand the significance of the time in order to understand what the writer is really getting to. Is that clear? You, you kind of get the point? All right. Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight in a way. The time period of these three saints that we're going to talk about tonight St. Augustine, uh, St. Jerome, and St. Pope Leo the Great, all from the 5th century, BC, I was going to say BC, AD, of course. Now, the 5th century, or roughly 100 years, you might say, after the Edict of Milan, where Constantine declared uh, religious freedom among all peoples of the Roman Empire. During the persecutions that happened from the time of, uh, well, from around the 66, year 66 AD, right up through uh, 313 AD, during those persecutions, people band together. They came together, they worked together, and uh, just to survive, and just to live, to understand the teachings of Christ. And there wasn't a lot of infighting in the church. But boy, once peace was declared outside, that's when they started to express themselves in the way they understood the teachings of Christ and how people should live by them. So what happens, of course, in the latter part of the 4th century and the early part of the 5th century, 
you had all of these little heresies developed because people were trying to interpret the teachings of Christ in their own way to suit themselves. Well, because in the Middle East you had so many different cultures, each one tried to adopt the heresies or the teachings of certain, um, let's say, dynamic leaders. Uh, you have Pelagius, you have um, uh, Aris, and so many others. There must have been four. You're going to talk about some of those later. Okay. Steve will talk about some of the heresies later. Uh, particularly that St. Augustus had to fight, but also Leo the Great. Uh, there were a number of them, and the people that uh, began some of these heresies were very sincere, they were very devout, but they were very wrong as well. And what you have is a lot of political uh, jockeying for power and for attention in the church. And that's the background of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Okay. So you got to have to keep that in mind uh, because each one of these three people were up against a lot of problems, you might say. Um, St. Augustine. No, I'm sorry. Steve is going to talk about St. Augustine. I want to talk about St. Jerome. St. Jerome is most noted for translating the Hebrew scriptures as well as the writings of the first century into Latin. And that creates, or created, you might say, the first fully compiled Bible that the church had. So you have to understand that for the first three or four uh, hundred years, the church did not have a unified Bible. Many people talk about, well, all we need is the Bible. We don't need the church. That was Martin Luther's great theme, you know, sola scriptura, as he would phrase it, meaning that why need all of the church it's only the Bible that we need. Well, it was the church that established the Bible, not the other way around. Okay, Obviously, the church came from the teachings, or from Christ himself and the teachings of the apostles. But it was the church who brought together the writings of the Old Testament and the writings of the New Testament uh, or the writings of the first century, you might say, uh, and then created the Bible that we have today. But that wasn't developed, really, until the middle of the fifth century. So, you can see what may have happened before that. All right. St. Jerome, and I'm going to read some of this, because this is a man who... I was going to bring uh, a copy. I have the copy of the Jerome commentary, which is, without exaggerating, at least that thick. It is thicker than a New York telephone book, okay? Uh, and probably just as boring, but um, nevertheless, he was prolific in his writings. 
but not everybody agreed with that. A lot of politics again. All right. So let me kind of read some of this. I'm not going to read a lot, but I want to read some of it so that you get the essence of this man. Uh, a great writer, but I'm not so sure that any of us would really want to call him a great friend. All right. <clears throat> Jerome, who lived from 345 A.D. to 420, is the most famous biblical scholar in the history of the church, also known for his cantankerous temperament and sarcastic wit. Yeah, nice guy. Okay. He is the patron saint of scholars and librarians. And he's born with this most unusual name that I cannot pronounce, and I'm not going to try, uh, in the, the Dalmatian Peninsula. He was well-educated, especially in grammar, rhetoric, and the classics, and was baptized somewhere around the year 366. So that would make him around 21 years old. It was the custom then to defer baptism until a later until later in life. And that's true. The whole idea of infant baptism came and went throughout the church in many, many different areas. Uh, babies were never baptized. They felt that babies, you know, obviously could not understand what was going on and therefore uh, it was something too precious to give to infants. And so it was delayed. All right. But the church vacillated back and forth throughout the first thousand years, you might say. Uh, some places they did, some places they didn't. And even today, there is still a lot of people within the church who um, feel that babies and very young children should not be baptized until they're old enough to understand what is going on? Well, some adults don't even understand that, so, you know. <coughs> After a period of travel in Gaul, Dalmatia, and Italy, he decided to become a monk. Along with a number of friends, uh, which was a major in Aquileia, wherever that is, I don't know, which was a major Christian center at the time. After a quarrel of some kind, the group broke up. But because of a chance meeting with a priest from Antioch, Jerome and three of his friends left for the east, arriving in Antioch in 374. Two of his friends died there, and Jerome himself became seriously ill. While sick, he had a dream in which he appeared, be in which he appeared before the judgment seat of God and was condemned for being at a Cicero, <laughs> Ciceronian, a follower of Cicero, okay? But try to say that, Ciceronian, sounds like a candy. <laughs> for being a Ciceronian rather than a Christian, he became a hermit in the Syrian desert for four or five years gave up the study of the classics and learned Hebrew in order to study the scriptures in the original language. He already knew Greek. He was ordained a priest in Antioch, 
But even though he had no real desire to be a priest, in fact, he never celebrated Mass. Kind of unusual. But remember, the priesthood way back at this time wasn't exactly the same as it is today. So you got to be very careful about that. All right. Uh, for centuries, it was a sin for a priest not to say Mass. That has now been changed in Vatican II. But nevertheless, up to Vatican II, uh, a priest had to say Mass unless he was, you know, half dead, you might say. Oh, also, he could not say Mass alone. Anyone know that? A priest could never say Mass alone. And that is the origin of altar boys. Because they would get the neighborhood boys to come in and at least... Uh, be, have somebody there. Alright. <clears throat> when Jerome left Constantinople in 382 to retire to his family estate, uh, no, I'm sorry. When Gregory, this is Pope Gregory, left Constantinople, uh, in 382 to retire to his family estate, Jerome returned to Rome to act as interpreter for Paulinus, one of the claimants to the Sea of Antioch. You see, Christianity had not embedded itself in Rome as we think of it today. You can't even imagine uh, the seat of the Catholic Church being anywhere else in Rome today. But it wasn't always like that in the early church. All right. <clears throat> Uh, he was uh, the claimant to the see of Antioch at a council called by Pope uh, Damasus I to discuss the schism in Antioch. Once the council was over, he was, he, meaning Jerome, was enlisted by the aged Pope to serve as his secretary. And while in Rome, Jerome did some biblical translations and began the enormous task of producing a Latin text of the entire Bible that would be faithful to the original languages. This would later be called the Vulgate. Vulgate comes from the same uh, root word that we get vulgar from because it was sort of the guttural, guttural language of the people at that time. Remember, in the early part, well, from... Actually, about the, the middle of the 4th century B.C. up through the 3rd or 4th century A.D., the language of the elite, even in Rome, was Greek. Okay. The language of the educated people was Greek. Latin was more of the local people uh, it was more of what we would call a dialect, all right? And the Vulgate was put into the local language of the people so that the people uh, could understand what was going on. He also wrote a number of commentaries on various books of the Bible. The one on Matthew's Gospel became a standard work. He, was, he also became the spiritual guide of a group of wealthy widows. And here's an interesting part, you know. <laughs> wealthy widows 
who were living a semi-monastic life. However, his relationship with them, especially Paula, gave rise to gossip, exasperating, no doubt, by the various uh, hermits who had fashion, he had fashioned because of his ascetic temperament and his harsh criticisms of certain members of the Roman clergy and some of the laity. It's not uh, do as I say, but do as I do, or whatever, just the opposite maybe. Therefore, when he left Rome, his brother Paulinia and some monks in August of 385, following the death of his protector, Pope Damasus, the previous December, it was under something of a cloud. He returned to Antioch and eventually settled in Bethlehem, where he was joined by Paula, her daughter, and some of the other Roman women who decided to join Jerome in exile. Jerome had met them earlier and toured the deserts of Egypt and Palestine with them, talking with hermits and taking copious notes about the geography and the local saints. Saints, in this case, meaning holy people now. Not saints as we think of them. With Paula's generous financial support, he established a monastery for monks and she convents for three communities of nuns. Jerome would spend the remainder of his life in Bethlehem, living in a cell hewn from a rock near the traditional birthplace of Jesus. Teaching, studying, writing, and advocating an asceticism that clearly preferred virginity over marriage. On one occasion, he wrote, Marriage, I praise it because it produces virgins. From the thorns I pluck the rose. Whatever that means, I really don't know. I tried, I spent some time trying to figure that one out. <clears throat> Nevertheless, he himself had close relationships with women, especially Paul. And upon her death in 404, he was described as inconsolable. One of the most unfortunate episodes during the period uh, was his bitter controversy with his old friend Rufi, Rufinus, now living in a monastery in Jerusalem over the teachings of Origen, one of the early fathers of the church, one of the most prominent theologians of the early church. Rufinus uh, had <coughs> translated some of Origen's work just as Jerome had some years earlier. And you can see the jealousy that gets in there and that kind of stuff. He sharply attacked his friend in harshly personal terms, destroying their friendship in the process and in spite of the efforts of Augustine, that would be St. Augustine, uh, to calm the situation. Then when Rufinus died in Sicily in 410, Jerome wrote, now that the scorpion lies buried in uh, wherever this place is. Nevertheless, it has to be said that Jerome's great learning was unmatched during this period of church history, except for that of Augustine himself. After having endured the sacking and burning of his monastery by thugs in 416, and with his health and eyesight failing, Jerome died in Bethlehem on September the 30th, the year 420, and was buried under the church of the Nativity, 
close to the graves of Paula and her daughter. Later, his body was removed to the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome. All right. I won't go on to the rest of this here. So you can see he was a very, very unusual person. Um, now, what does all of this mean in our the context of our saints? It shows that God can use virtually anybody in the process of furthering his plan of salvation. And what he does is he picks some of the most unusual people. Jerome isn't much different than St. Paul was way back in the first century. St. Paul was uh, a fire-headed guy, uh, out hell-bent for election, you might say, in trying to round up Christians uh, to bring them back to Rome uh, for punishment and, in some cases, death. Uh, as we know from the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Paul was at the uh, stoning of St. Stephen, and he probably condoned it, if not instigated it. So, Jerome is a very, as it says right in there, very cantankerous uh, person, somebody that you really wouldn't want to deal with on a regular basis, and he had his own kind of uh, soft side, uh, but yet God can use people like that. Now, he did, yes, something extraordinary by bringing the Bible together as we have it today. Okay, And that was a major, major accomplishment for the church. If you are aware of some of the Bible history, you will know that the Vulgate, which was finally completed towards the uh, middle of the 5th century. He died in 420. Somebody actually polished it up and finished it. It was the only Bible accepted throughout all of Christianity for over a thousand years until the advent of the printing press when printing became uh, rather convenient and easier to produce. Uh, people then wanted the Bible in their own language. And, of course, producing it in English was uh, another major uh, political problem, and that is how King James, not St. James, but King James, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, got into the picture. All right? He did not personally... Uh, translate the Bible, but he commissioned other people to do it, and it became uh, the Bible that we have today, known as the King James Bible. All right, Joe? Um, the translation from Greek and Hebrew to Latin, well, we can conclude that was divine, so the words were not the only translation. Even between you and I, we can stumble on it and get the wrong well, that, that's true, but as we heard in there, if I read it correctly, one of his, one of his major objectives 
was to make sure that it was translated accurately. Well, I was thinking that maybe it was divine, so he couldn't make any mistake. I would think so. Uh, because, as we know, the Holy Spirit was behind all of the writers of the Bible, and I would imagine that when it was translated, the Holy Spirit was very carefully uh, behind that, too. Uh, yes? Well, that was right from the beginning. Yes, yes, yes. Um, because we know that the letters of Paul were written before the Gospels. All right? And so when the Gospels came along, they were treated with the same sincerity. Uh, I can't think of a better word. Uh, the same sincerity as the letters of Paul. Uh, as something that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, even though the words were written down by human beings. And that's true throughout the whole Bible. You didn't have the Holy Spirit with pen and quill doing it himself, you know. He wrote through human beings, but inspired. Were all of the chapters in Hebrew in Jerusalem or wherever he wrote, or Rome, wherever he wrote most of this, that he gathered them all together? Now, he who? Jerome. Jerome. Well, he did most of his writings in Bethlehem. Yeah, well, in Bethlehem. Well, they were there, the copies, uh, yeah. whatever was written in Hebrew. Yes. Yeah. Now, these were from the Jewish temple? Probably. Except that, as it said in one of the other uh, <coughs> historical writings that I've read, he did not accept the Septuagint version. He wanted to go back to the original Hebrew version. Well, uh, he got into another political argument about that and eventually came back to accept most of the Hebrew version. So, I mean the Septuagint. So that what we have today, the Old Testament is a translation from the Latin uh, and the Latin was a translation from the Greek. Okay. Yes. Two-part question. Before the Vulgate, the bishops and the clergy who were well-educated would have been using the, the Greek version, the Vulgate or not the, uh, or the Bible. Well, the Greek or no Vulgate. the re- Greek or the Hebrew. Yeah. You see, there was no organization, and therefore it was kind of loosey, pardon the expression, but loosey-goosey. All right? Some would use the Hebrew, some would use the Greek. So anyway, they were, they were spread around from there. When, when Jerome starts writing the Bible, I can imagine that just a copy of a version of the Bible would take close to a year. Probably, if not longer. So, so it's, you know, and he didn't have a big monastery amongst the copyists. No. He was pretty much of a small operation. Well, it that's... It would take years for that to get out to all the people. 
One of the one of the problems of Jerome's writings was he wrote very rapidly. He had to have somebody come behind him and constantly check it out. Proofery, you might say. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the comments that I noticed. He wrote and he spoke very rapidly. Yes, Susan. Greek. Originally, the Gospels were written, uh, most people think in Greek, but most likely uh, in Hebrew or Aramaic, and then translated. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute now. You're mixing a couple things up here. Okay. All right. What Susan is talking about is that during the Reformation, which was the 16th century, uh, 15th no, 16th century, yeah, when Martin Luther and his followers broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, they wanted to do away with a lot of things Catholic. Okay, one of the things that they did was they rejected the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. They kind of wiped out all of what we have in our Bibles. And they went back and accepted and used the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, which is pretty much the same with the exception of six books that were written in Greek. But the Septuagint was written way back in the 2nd century B.C. Okay? So, when Jerome, in the 5th century A.D., translates, he started with the Hebrew version, but then was persuaded to move over to the Greek version. And so, the translation that he ended up with was a translation from the Greek into the Latin. That's what they were rejecting. Who? Uh, Martin yes. They were rejecting that because they Yes. Well, Martin Luther's argument had nothing to do with the Greek versus the Latin. His, he wanted to get rid of the Catholic part of it. And that's why it was also Martin Luther's followers who, when they used a cross, it was a cross without the image on it. All right. Uh, their argument there, which is still the argument that many Protestant churches have for not using the cross, is that the resurrection was more important than the, cro- than the crucifixion. The thing is, <clears throat> Catholics say 
that you can't separate them. It is it is one event. All right, one without the other is useless or purposeless. Okay, so the cruise, the passion, the death, and resurrection of Christ are all one event. All the culmination or the uh, climax, you might say, of God's plan of salvation. Okay. Yes, Norm? Uh, Norm's question is, he, who translated the Hebrew into the Greek? Alright. Alright, this is back in the second century BC. Alright. When we talk about the diaspora, but, uh, you've all heard, I hope, of that term, the diaspora. All right. It comes from the same word as dispersing. It means that during the Babylonian war, which lasted virtually ten years off and on again, many Jews from Palestine or Israel moved to other countries to avoid the fighting. All right, and avoid the war. That was considered the first diaspora of people living in both Greece and North Africa. As they developed into communities and cities and the population in those areas grew, many of them lost the use of the Hebrew or the Aramaic and spoke only Greek. And they wanted the scriptures, even though they didn't speak Hebrew any longer, they were still devout Jews. So they wanted the Hebrew scriptures in Greek, their language, the language of the elite. Alright? So, 70 men Seventy men or seventy-two. We we never knew exactly which. Um, six men from each tribe of Jacob, each tribe of Israel, gathered together to write and translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And as the legend goes, now this is legend, not history. As the legend goes, is that these 70 or 72 men wrote and translated all of the Hebrew scriptures in 72 days. They each took a part of uh, the 43 books of the, or well, there's only 37 books of the Old Testament in, in Hebrew or Aramaic. And they translated all of those in 72 days. And they took that as a sign of God's approval. Right. That's legend. That's not history. Okay. But we don't know exactly. It was over a period of time. Somewhere in the second century BC. Yeah. No. No. There's no record of who was involved or who was in charge. All right. Uh, those records are all gone. Uh, you got to remember that there was a lot of warring going on 
throughout the Middle East. Well, there still is, and, you know. <laughs> so what else is new? Yes. Uh, but one of the things that the conquerors would do as soon as they got control of a, a city or a town or a village or whatever is destroy all the records. Because it was a way of destroying their identity. And, of course, we now have no way of knowing a lot of the things that happened. No, no, no. All of the Dead Sea Scrolls were from the prior, the time prior to Christ. Alright? Because these were the Essenes who left Jerusalem during the Maccabean Wars, or right afterwards, and established their colony in the Masada, in the desert, all right? They had their own ways of doing things and their own ways of interpreting Judaism. <clears throat> there is no reference to anything in the Dead Sea Scrolls from what we call the New Testament. I have copies of all of the published Dead Sea Scrolls as well as the history. No, no. Well, they were all from after the first century. All right, and one of the things, one of the conditions that Jerome went by, was his idea, of course, was that nothing in the official Vulgate came from anyone other than the apostles, including St. Paul. And nothing after the first century. That is why we are called the Apostolic Church coming from the apostles. That's what the word means. Uh, now, those, the the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and uh, the prayer of um, whatever it was called, I don't remember now, even though I have a copy of it, uh, those all came much later. And mostly after, or from disgruntled people who didn't want to abide by the church's teaching. Any other questions? Alright. I'm going to turn, because we are missing, we're losing time here, I want to turn the, the microphone. Okay, first of all, uh, you got a handout when we got here, and the map, and I have to apologize, it came out really grainy on the copier. And also, the very top kind of got chopped. That that first word is tagast with a T, not an L. It looks like an L. Um, so you have a map, and you also have a list of the heresies that Augustine combated. And then on the back of that, there's, there's some more copies if we need it. There's a list of some of his more famous quotes that I thought were interesting. Let me start with his opening paragraph in the book Confessions. You are great, Lord, and highly to be praised. Great is your power, and your wisdom is immeasurable. 
Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you. A human being bearing his mortality with him, carrying with him the witness of his sin, and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you, because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. I started with that because that's probably his most famous quote, the the restless heart, and uh, I can certainly identify with that. Uh, St. Augustine was born in 354 in Tagast, which is in northern Africa. And another reason I wanted to print the map is I thought, for those of us who aren't geography majors, how close North Africa is to Rome and to Europe. Uh, it fascinated me to look at that, so I, that's why I threw the map in there. Uh, he was raised with a Christian education by his saintly mother, uh, St. Monica. And uh, as, as was the custom of the time, he was not baptized until he was an adult. Uh, even though he suffered a, uh, a serious illness as a young person and even requested baptism, uh, he, he did have baptism delayed, which was kind of a, a custom of the time, as Mel pointed out. Uh, he was a good student in school. His father, Patricius, uh, perhaps owing to uh, fatherly pride, wanted to send him to the best school, uh, which was in Carthage at the time. Uh, but he couldn't afford it. Uh, so while his father is saving money to send him to this best school, uh, young St. Augustine, probably 13, 14, 15 years of age, is... Uh, is idle, and uh, you can imagine those of us who have teenage kids, they know that uh, when they're idle, they're usually getting in trouble, and that's what Augustine did. So uh, he he's being he was raised as a Christian. He knows all the all the faith, and yet here he is as a young man uh, with idle time, and then he's sent away to school, and uh, we can relate to what. Our modern times, often our, our children are in the same situation. They, they go away to school and they lose their faith. Uh, so this is what Augustine did. He goes away to Carthage, which on your map is, is also in northern Africa. And he loses uh, whatever little bit of faith that he had when he left. And he falls into licentiousness and debauchery. And I'll read now a quote from his book. See how I post it. But I was an unhappy young man, wretched as at the beginning of my adolescence, when I prayed you for chastity and said, Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. I was afraid you might hear my prayer quickly and that you might too rapidly heal me of the disease of lust, which I preferred to satisfy rather than suppress. So... This is his own biography, of course, and uh, it gives us a picture of, of the kind of trouble that this young man was in. So much so that by 372, he uh, fathers a child out of wedlock, uh, a Deo Datus. My Latin is probably needs some work there. Um, also, while at Carthage, he, he falls in with, with one of the heretical sects at the time, 
uh, the Manichaeans, and that's on your handout for homework if you'd like. Um, and just generally speaking, this heresy uh, sharply divided the Old and New Testament. Um, so much so that they taught that there were two gods, a good god and a bad god. So, uh, anyhow, uh, while immersed in Manichaeanism, he still feels this restlessness in his heart. Uh, he questions many of the leaders of the sect, uh, but they're no match for his intellect, and he comes away disappointed. Uh, after meeting with the local bishop of the sect, uh, whom he called a vulgar rhetorician, rhetorician, I'm mangling that word too, uh, and a stranger to all scientific culture, uh, he finally breaks from the heresy. And he's disgusted with, with their uh, unintellectual uh, points. Uh, his restlessness would only be satisfied by an encounter with the living God. So at this time, uh, he's, he's still in Carthage, and um, he's come home to, to, to Gost, and uh, the lures of Italy are calling. And at this point, he has to literally sneak away from his mother, and he abandons her in Africa and goes to Italy. Uh, and uh, I can't help but think that maybe he was running from God. Uh, his mother, as we know, is a saint. And uh, probably couldn't stand to be around her, really, to be honest. Um, so he gets to Rome, and by 383, he opens the school of rhetoric in Rome, but uh, he's defrauded by his students. And so uh, out of frustration, he, he abandons Rome and he goes to Milan, which, uh, you know, when we stand back and look at all of this, you can see that, that, that God has got a plan here for him. Uh, because in Milan, he meets uh, the future St. Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, who was a great bishop and preacher. Um, and it's at this time that Augustine uh, begins uh, his final, what I termed, a lurch into the, into the full faith uh, of Christ and the church. Um, so he, he's now a professor in Milan, and uh, by 386, he decides to to resign his professorship in Milan, and he takes uh, his mother, Monica, who's, who's joined him by now. She tracked him down. Uh, uh, he, she take, he takes Monica and some close friends, and they, they retire to a secluded villa in, in, uh, outside of Milan for uh, reflection and prayer and discussion. And uh, really, this time is when he becomes fully converted. Uh, oddly enough, this is a three-year period from 383 to 386 that this happens. I thought that was uh, interesting. So he's in Milan, and uh, or outside of Milan, and um, th there's a little whimsical story. I call it whimsical because um, um, he, he is hoping that God would just convert him, convert him in his heart, and he's hoping for that one... I don't know, spark or, or whatever. Um, and he hears a voice that tells him to take and read. And I'll read you that the passage that he... So he determines that he's going to open the scriptures and read, read whatever comes to mind. And it's Romans 13, chapter... Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. And it says, uh, Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day, 
not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and licentiousness, not in rivalry and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. So this is the text that he reads at that time. And uh, he finally gives up, I guess, at that point and, and lets God take over. Um, the year 387 is, is really... So he's gone through this three-year period of conversion. okay, And uh, we can, as we look back, or as we look from up here, we can see that the God is preparing him for something. And what happens in 387... Uh, is he finally accepts baptism. Uh, Ambrose baptizes him. Uh, and his mother dies in 387. And from confessions, on the night, on the ninth day of her illness, when she was aged 56 and I was 33, this religious and devout soul was released from the body. I closed her eyes, and an overwhelming grief welled into my heart. But my mother's dying meant neither that her state was miserable, nor that she was suffering extinction. We were confident of this because of the evidence of her virtuous life. So after the death of Monica, he returns to Africa, where his dream is to to retire to his estate and live live a monastic life, really, um, of study and prayer and contemplation. Uh, but we know God had other plans. Um, by 391, he is, uh, he's been living this life now for four years. He's praying in a church in Hippo, which on your map you'll see is, is just north of his hometown. So he's in his old stomping grounds, really. Um, the townsfolk surround him, and beg the bishop to ordain him a priest. And he reluctantly agrees. Uh, but then the bishop encourages him to found a monastery nearby where he gathers a group with him and uh, they continue this, this life. Uh, moving on to now, uh, during his uh, episcopate, um, excuse me, let me back up. There's a synod in Africa in 393, which uh, Mel was speaking about how the, the canon of Scripture came about. This particular synod was the bishops of Africa came together to, um, among other things, to ratify the canon that had been sent out, the list of the Scriptures that uh, had originated in Rome with, with Damas, Pope Damasus and with Jerome. Um, Augustine is invited to speak at this at this synod, and um, he he impressed the bishops of Africa so much that they they raised him to the episcopate himself in uh, in 396. Uh, he presided in his diocese for 34 years. Um, during this time, he he debated many of the uh, the people that were involved in the heresies, and again, you can look at your handout uh, at home. Uh, he he wrote over a hundred books refuting all of these different. Uh, you know, he'd put a fire out over here with the with Pelagius, and then he'd have to go and fight the Arius, Her, Arian heresy over here. And so he he was a busy guy. Uh, he lived a monastic life even as a bishop, and he gathered his the priests of his diocese. They lived with him in community. 
And uh, this was such a successful formula, I guess, that, that ten of his... Uh, ten of his priests became bishops themselves in the surrounding uh, neighboring dioceses. Uh, many of his writings today, his writings and sermons today, can still be used in apologetics um, in refuting the, the various heresies that are still with us today. Uh, in 430, this is the year that he dies, uh, Hippo was under siege by the Vandals, okay, who were a, a tribe from Germany, a Germanic tribe, that drifted in and out of the Roman Empire, um, pillaging and looting. Uh, so much so that we still have that word today. Uh, if you think of vandalism, uh, that's where we get that word. That's a good picture of what this band of uh, people did. Uh, he died August 28th in the year 430, and that's, that's actually his feast day, I'm pretty sure, uh, August 28th, uh, at the age of 76. Um, he is credited with uh, formulating much of our Christian philosophy today. He took the, the philosophy of the Greeks and the intellect, intellectual Christian uh, tradition and, and wedded them together. And... Uh, you know, you can't say enough about his uh, influence and impact on the church. So much so that our current Holy Father and his uh, blessed predecessor are big fans. And uh, for those who want to go deeper, I have a couple notes here. Pope Benedict gave five general audiences in January and February of 2008, solely on St. Augustine. And uh, blessed John Paul II wrote an encyclical in 98, uh, on the relationship between faith and reason. I was going to try the Latin, but I'll leave that alone. Um, and I'll end with a quote from John Paul here. Faith and reason, which can be credited solely to Augustine, uh, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word, to know himself so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. And that's St. Augustine in 15 minutes. Very good. Thank you, Steve. Well, you can see the difference between these two men so far. Uh, Jerome, whose contribution to the church was primarily in his translations of the various books of the Bible and really in bringing and establishing the Bible uh, to, as we have it today. Yes. Probably not well, but yes, there was some contact. As I said, Jerome was primarily his writings. St. Augustine was primarily his theology. All right. Of course, he had to write that down so that we would have it. But nevertheless, uh, that was what he was primarily known for. Uh, the theological interpretations of scripture and the teachings of the church. Norm, did you have a question? 
Ambrose, yes. Yes, St. Ambrose, yeah, in Milan. Yeah. Uh, all right, now we come to a third uh, of our subjects for the for the night. Pope Leo the Great, who lived about the same time, but his contribution was a lot different. And as I've said before, when God chooses people to do specific uh, things for him in furthering his plan of salvation, there is no cookie-cutter saint, you might say. Everyone has some unique talent or gift that God gave him or her in the first place and is now using that for the betterment of the entire church. And that's what sainthood is all about, is contributing our time and our talents uh, for the betterment of the church. And I don't mean necessarily the institutional church. I mean the church made up of all of us human beings. All right. So I'm talking about the betterment or the uplifting, the edifying of individuals. Right. But Leo the Great is more known for his way of dealing with all of these heresies as the Pope. You can see that now Rome is beginning to uh, structure itself in the way that we see it today. <clears throat> However, very weakly, but nevertheless, the structure, the essence of Rome is now being felt. <clears throat> Leo the Great, from, well, who reigned as Pope only for 21 years, from the year 440 to the year 460, 461, is one of only two popes given the title the Great the other being Gregory the Great. Born in Rome of Tuscan parents at the end of the 4th century, he served as an advisor to Pope Celestine I and Sixtus III. He was elected to the papacy while still only a deacon. And that's not unusual. Many of the popes were not priests or bishops at that time. Uh, remember, the church is just really be coming together now, and the structure is being formed. So we, you know, can't even imagine uh, a pope today not being a cardinal uh, or a bishop, and yet back in this time, he wasn't even a priest; he was only a deacon. As Pope, he proved to be a strong advocate of papal authority and of the teachings of the Council of Chalcedon on the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ, which was the uh, main subject of that particular uh, ecumenical council. So forcefully articulated uh, were Leo's claims for the Pope's universal and supreme authority over the Church, in fact, that his own pontificate constituted a major turning point 
in the history of the papacy. He was the first pope to uh, claim to be Peter's heir, which, according to Roman law, meant that all the rights and duties associated with Peter lived on in Leo. Uh, let me tell you a little side story. Uh, when Father McDonald was pastor here, he got into an argument with uh, a, a lady when he said that Peter wasn't the first pope. And she just stormed at him, you know, and said that Peter was the first pope because Christ. And so what McDonald meant was he wasn't called the pope at that time. Now, obviously the authority was there. There was no question about that. It was just that the term pope, which from the Latin or the Italian means father, uh, or is sort of a, a colloquial way of saying father, papa, um, that's what McDonald meant, that Peter was not referred to as pope, because that term hadn't been coined yet, you might say. Okay. <clears throat> But this is an interesting point. He was the first pope to claim to be Peter's heir, which, according to Roman law, remember, the church patterned itself after Roman law. The canon of the church is very much in the order, not the same subjects, but formulated in the order of Roman law. And that is where we get the term Roman Catholic Church. Not from the city of Rome, but from Roman law. Indeed, Leo himself exercised firm control over the bishops of Italy, including Milan and the northern region, enforcing uniformity of pastoral practices, correcting abuses, and resolving disputes. In replying to appeals from the bishops, of Spain to help in their fight against uh, Priscillianism, <clears throat> a heresy that regarded the human body as evil. I think um, it'd be interesting if Hollywood got a hold of that today. Eh? <clears throat> he laid down uh, precise instructions for action. Although ecclesiastical Africa was traditionally jealous of its pastoral autonomy, especially against any encroachments upon it by Rome, Leo's rulings on irregular irregularities in African elections and other regional conflicts were eagerly sought after and embraced. When Hilary of Arles, St. Hilary of Arles, began acting as if his diocese in southern Gaul, or France, still possessed the special authority over other local churches in the region granted to it by Pope uh, Zosimus, I never heard of him, uh, but revoked by his successor Boniface, Leo ordered that Hilary confine his pastoral activities to his own diocese. So, you see, the infighting, the politics that went on at this time hasn't changed really much. Specifically, he was to stop interfering in the appointment of bishops 
of other dioceses. Bishops were to be elected by the local clergy and leading laity. That's changed a great deal. And the election was to be ratified by the people generally. Leal's electoral principle is still quoted, but unfortunately has not been enforced for centuries. He who is in charge of all should be chosen by all, according to his letter number 10. <clears throat> the East, however, was much less disposed than the West to accept Leo's papal claims. <clears throat> in June of the year 449, for example, he sent an important letter, number 28, or tome, to Bishop Flavian of Constantinople, condemning the mono... Yeah, monophysites, yeah, monophysites, really. Teaching that in Christ there is only a divine nature. Christ's human nature having been absorbed by the divine. That's one of the heresies again. The Emperor Theodosius II called a council at Ephesus in August, not to be confused with the ecumenical council of Ephesus held in 431. Pope Leo was represented by three delegates who had with them a copy of the tome, which Leo expected to be read out and approved. But the council disregarded it, condemning Bishop Flavian and rehabilitated the monk, uh, whatever, some of these names, <laughs> like Steve had uh, real trouble with, <clears throat> who had been censured by Flavian for his monocyte uh, views. Leo refused to recognize the council, referring to it as a uh, robber council. Two years later, another ecumenical council was convened. Now, an ecumenical council is like <coughs> Vatican II. It is a collection or a grouping or a coming together, a meeting of all the bishops of the entire church, active bishops. And it is called, at least today it is, maybe not back in this time, but today it is only or can only be called by the Pope himself. Okay. And so that's why Pope John the Twenty Third created such a stir when he called for an ecumenical council uh, back in nineteen fifty nine, which didn't begin until four years later, or three years later, I guess it was. All right. Um, but it's only the Pope who can call an ecumenical council. There have only been twenty 21 uh, official, 22 if you read and add the one that's mentioned in chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles. Okay. <clears throat> Leo is also celebrated for his courageous personal confrontation with Attila the Hun near Mantua in the year 452 when the warrior was laying waste to northern Italy and preparing to move south toward Rome. This is what Steve was referring to earlier about the Huns or the Germanic tribes invading Rome. It was the end of, the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. Alright. But Leo the Great stood his ground and got Attila the Hun to leave Rome alone. He headed a delegation from the Roman Senate. Leo persuaded Attila to withdraw beyond the Danube. Well, there goes my place. 
in 455, he also met the Vandal king, Censeric, uh, outside the walls of Rome. Although Leo failed to persuade Censeric with, to withdraw, he succeeded at least in preventing the torching of the city and the massacring of its people. Upon his death on November the 10th, in 461, Leo was buried in the portico or porch of St. Peter's. Now that isn't the same St. Peter's that we have today. The church that we have today was built in the 15th century. His body was moved to the interior of the Basilica in 688, and he was declared a doctor of the church in 1754. His feast is on the general Roman calendar and is celebrated by the Russian Orthodox Church on February the 18th. Leo the Great. So you can see how different these three men were, yet all living at the same time, all having their own uh, responsibilities, their own problems. They're all working towards lifting up the church and developing its structure. Right? Uh, it's interesting how God used each one of them in a very special way. The reason that they are saints is not so much for the great things that they did, but the fact that they gave their whole life to God in one way or another, one form or another. And that's what sainthood is really all about. Not doing great things necessarily, but giving yourself uh, in complete uh, submission, you might say, to the will of God in letting him use you. All right? Each one of us, again, as I've said many times and will continue to say, has a little bit of responsibility for God's plan of salvation. And it is up to us to find out what that is and fulfill it. Uh, and we do that through prayer. It's not through your willing to do great things for the church. It is not your, uh, or should not be your way of becoming a saint by, uh, you know, stepping up to the plate, you might say, and contributing either finances or time or talents. It is by opening up your mind and your heart to the will of God and letting him direct you. That's the main way of becoming the same. Any questions? Dick? A little comment. St. Jerome and others would seem to indicate we can have a little bit of the devil in us and still become a saint. A whole. <laughs> well, I think you can say that many of the saints had, let's say, colorful lives, up to a point. And then, once they become, as Steve mentioned, uh, totally giving up to God, then they change. Okay? And the little devil, as you just point out, is uh, sent packing. After Paula died. Yes, after Paula died. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jerome and Paul. Yeah. All right. Uh, but I think that that's not unusual. 
all of the saints had uh, a colorful life. Look at St. Francis, uh, St. Ignatius, many of them, St. Uh, Paul himself. So, you know, God can use all of us. And I think it is those people who are not afraid to step out and do things that God uses the most. Now, on the other hand, you have somebody like St. Teresa of Lisieux, who entered the convent as a very young person and never left. She did not do a lot of great things, except she did a lot of great praying. And her writings inspired many, many people to the point where she is looked upon as the influence of many other people becoming saints. And that's something that we should also look at as well. It is not so much what we do, but why we do it, and how we might affect others in the process. Because what we do is often influencing others, even though we may not know it. So the whole idea of following Christ for his purpose, for his will, is the essence of sacred. Any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to explore the lives of these three men. We ask that you help us to better understand how we might fit into your plan of salvation and how we can contribute, not of our will, but thine will be done. Give us the strength and the courage then to open our mind and our heart so that we can give you our will. It is not our nature to be submissive to anyone. That's sort of not the Western uh, way of living. But nevertheless, that's the way to your heart that we would like to come in. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.